0: Welcome uh, to lesson number five in the equipping series. Um, We're looking through uh, Bible study methods uh, or inductive Bible study. And uh, this is week five, but actually we're on lesson four. So I better make that clear. Today we're going to look at uh, two particular areas. We're going to look at uh, genres, the different genres of the Bible and uh, how that relates to interpretation. You know, as we started last week, we, last week we discussed what hermeneutics was. Can you guys remember what hermeneutics is?
1: The area of study that gives us principles or methods for interpreting an author's meaning.
0: Right. The area of study that gives us <laughs> principles and methods that interprets the original orders, author's intended meaning. Really good. Okay. Why is hermeneutics important? We didn't ask this question last week, but why is hermeneutics important?
1: Understanding.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It will create our understanding. We have a we have a book, which has been authored over fifteen hundred years through the inspiration of God. We talked right about that way back at the beginning. That is uh, inspired by God. He's used human authors, and this science and art of interpretation is important. Because it's not a dead book. What is one of the most famous portions of scripture that talk about this book not being dead? Can you think of that? Hebrews. Hebrews. Hebrews four sixteen. look at that. Hebrews four sixteen says this. Uh, 4.12 actually sorry not 4.16 Hebrews 4.12 Uh, for the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart and no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account Pretty amazing verses. Now, what, I, what have I done there which isn't helpful in the study of hermeneutics? What haven't I done? I haven't brought context into that. So, you guys work on this. You've got the portion before you. Where does the context of this verse start, and where does it finish? Okay, as we look at the uh, context of Hebrews 4.12... It's been noted that when I have dragged this, I've I've made some hermeneutical errors. The class has said, yeah, you have. So now we're just working through the process, what what needs to occur. So we're just looking at what is the context of Hebrews? So we've understood that it's potentially a sermon. The author is unknown. The audience we're talking about, so the audience is potentially Hebrews or Jews. And the Hebrew Christians And we get that when we look through and read through this book Because there is a lot of uh, significance placed on Old Testament Old Testament quotes, Old Testament allusions, Old Testament uh, themes, if you like The major theme is the superiority of Christ if you wanted to lock Hebrews into a major theme, you'd say it's about the superiority of Christ over angels, over Moses, over Melchizedek. There are three key areas over the sacrifices, His sacrifice is final. And then you go into that wonderful hall of faith, right? Where you've got an Old Testament chronology that talks about these are people of faith. And you summarise it in Hebrews 12, where we have a major uh, summary statement. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, speaking about all of those in chapter 11, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which kings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So don't, to this Hebrew audience, don't look to Moses, don't look to Melchizedek, don't look to the angels, don't look to your sacrificial systems, don't look to those things, look to Jesus. He is superior, he is supreme, he is the great I am, as we have been, discussing in our morning services. So look to him, the founder and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is at the right hand of the throne of God. The work is done. The work is completed. He starts out in chapter 1. The work is completed in Christ. Consider him who endured from sin such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So that's the whole let us encouragement stuff coming through. And it's everywhere in Hebrews. So that's the context. But how does that answer the question of where does Hebrews 4.12 fit in? So that you have the broad context of the book. So how do we actually go through and start interpreting... What the mini-themes are, what the mini-context mini is, if you like, of Hebrews 4.12. What's some keys in your English Bibles that are helpful?
1: Chapters,
0: passages, headings. Yeah, chapters, passages, headings. Chapters probably not so much. I would avoid using the chapter breaks. But I would look very much for paragraph breaks. Okay, most English translations, if you've got a reasonable layout, will have a paragraph break. Do you know how to identify that? Uh, sometimes not. I'll um, I'll show you. I'll show you. Um, so, for instance, you've got you know that, that I don't know what you call that thing, right? Mm. But that's in uh, a word processor. You get that all the time. So that's a paragraph break. Right. You can see So verse eleven here is yeah, digitally
1: indented. Yeah, this in here is a paragraph. Yeah, it's a paragraph, so it's an
0: indent. So you look for these editorial clues. Now this is when you look for editorial clues. That is only the editors, Okay, it's not part of the inspired scriptures, but it's it's part of language. It's part of how our translators have broken up the text. I would generally go to a Greek New Testament here and look at the way the UBS, the United Bible Society Greek New Testament, and there's another, another one which I can never pronounce, so I won't even try. But they are recognised as the two best Greek New Testaments, and they they will differ in some of the editorial uh, paragraphs and things like that. So it's it's good to cross reference, and then you got to make a call. So when we look at this, where does the paragraph start for Hebrews 4:12? Verse 11. And how does it start? Let us. Let us. So it's an exhortation, right? What is it exhorting from and to? So normally let us is a, like a summary statement of something that's gone before. It's, it's like therefore. It's yes, like therefore. Very much like therefore, but it has a greater force.
1: It says, "Let us therefore."
0: Ah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Oh, okay. Well, the ESV
0: does let it. us therefore. That's, so uh, that's ESV. ESV. Well, ESV. So it says, "Let us therefore." So this is a really emphatic statement. So as you do your reading, you think, "Wow, you've got this double whammy here going on, where we've got major emphasis." You know the old English thing: "What's the therefore? Therefore." It's summarizing something. So you'd, you'd drive you immediately up, wouldn't it? What
1: is it therefore, therefore?
0: What's the therefore, therefore? I just go, sorry. Yeah. I thought you were starting. No, no, no. What's the therefore, therefore? What is the therefore, therefore? And, and so you've got to, that's, that's part of context. The therefore is therefore, there, <laughs> to actually summarize something that's gone on before. So immediately I would go up. I'd go up the chapter to find out, okay, what's he summarizing? Why is he summarizing it? Because that's going to provide the context. It seems like
1: the subject
0: of rest is rest is there. yep. yeah. No yeah. Let's have a let's have a wee, wee look. So it's interesting because you go actually if you go up to four one you have another therefore statement, don't you? So it's a it's a ongoing summary of argument. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest interview you should seem. To have failed to reach it, and he was using obviously some historical times with Moses leading out of Egypt and just the, the wrestling and the, the whole rest for the people of God that was promised by hitting the promised land that didn't happen because they were warring and all this sort of stuff, uh, and then he carries on. For good news came to us just as to them. So the us and them. once he talking? He's he's contrasting two major periods of time, isn't he? it's contrasting two major periods of time us and them us, he was previously talking about the people in Sinai in the wilderness oh, us, sorry, he's talking about themselves here and now the then was the people in Sinai so it's contrasting they received good news just like you received good news just like we received good news but the messages they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened for we who have believed into the rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So that's uh, you'll say, okay, as a student of hermeneutics, you need to do something with that. Does that look like a quote for you? Verse 4? Yeah? Where is it quoted from? So as a student, that's where you start thinking. Okay, to get this right, I've got to determine where that's quoted from. If you have a reference study Bible, it's pretty simple. Say cited from Psalm 95:11. Okay, so it will tell you. If you have a reference study Bible, um, this is where I would really encourage you to have that NET Bible we talked about a long time ago. It is the best in the market at the moment for English, English only, with references and citations and translator notes. It is superb and electronically. Yeah, you can just get some amazing tools these days where you just click on the word and it'll tell you where it is. You know, so I don't, I don't use Blue Letter Bible. I don't use some of the free online stuff as I have my own Bible software. But that's another way to look. Go into those online programs, and um, you should be able to pick up some of these reference checks really quickly. i N E T. I've got a, I can show you, Rod. I think you missed out on the first session, but I've got a copy in the office and it's um, it's yes. just an excellent you can, just you can get it on any Bible gateway as well
1: I just like using the NET Bible
0: yeah. yeah and hopefully it has all the translator notes that are associated with it does it on the Bible gateway
1: separate, no, no. if you get it in Luridian it's a separate
0: file. Yeah. but you
1: can have
0: a split window the split window yeah so yeah, that's, that's what you can do that's just like my Bible software I can have four or five split windows and Look at different versions, look at different notes, study notes to say, okay, well this is what we were thinking. So anyway, so you will notice that in there we have a we have a direct quote from Psalm ninety five eleven. So when I see a quote from Psalm ninety five eleven, hermeneutically, what am I gonna do? Look it up. You are, aren't you? What are you gonna look up? The
1: reference and its context.
0: Yes. You're gonna look up the whole Psalm. You're gonna read the whole Psalm and you're gonna try and determine. How does 95.11 fit into the picture of that unit of thought? Psalms are individual units of thought.
1: That's one he thing be, that we have when he's quoting from Hebrews. He might be just pinching that particular psalm, uh, that verse, out of context.
0: you don't know that until you've looked at it. Uh, they can do that. Well, maybe. But what they do, what, by, by doing that, if he's writing to a Hebrew audience, he, he's assuming that a Hebrew audience is going to know why he's writing it and what point he is making. And
1: um, the example of one is when
0: was a Matthew says, so I pulled my son out of Egypt. Yeah, but that, that's, yeah. That, that's that, a, that is the 1%. Let's uh, think about the 99%, which actually mean something that's kind of significant. Okay? Um, yeah, the one out of Matthew is a unusual and difficult thing. So you're saying most likely they actually stick to the context when they take a Psalm Most likely. And see, when you when you go and grab this, if you want to go even more advanced on this, what you do is you decide what in what way is he quoting it. There's two options. He's either quoting it out of the Masoretic text, or he's quoting it out of the Septuagint. Yeah. So there's tools these days you can buy a commentary to select that will have a look at all the stuff and talks through the likelihood of, you know, what, is it a better match for Masoretic or is it a better match for the Septuagint? Because the Septuagint is what? the translation of the Masoretic. So it does differ. Anyway, so Psalm 95. Who's got Psalm 95? Let's read Psalm 95. Psalm so 95. Is a fairly short psalm, so I'll read the whole lot. And you try and think about this why, do you, why has the Hebrew writer used this in relation to what we've been studying in Hebrews 4 to make a point? I come to sing to the Lord, let us make joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let's come into his presence with thanksgiving, let's make joyful noise to him with songs of praise the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also, uh, his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in Meribah as, as in the day of Messiah uh, in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test, but put him to the proof though they have seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, you are a people who go astray in their heart that they may have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. You are a Hebrew. If you heard Psalm 95 quoted, what would you think of? As I've just read that psalm. Yeah, you think of rebellion, yeah, you think of rebellion, you're thinking of stubborn heartedness, you're, you're thinking of rest, you're thinking of I should be singing a joyful noise to the Lord, that's repeated twice in the psalm. That should be my experience as joy in the Lord, but because of you know when this was sung, when it was sung in the tab in the uh, tabernacle in the in the temple, there's an edge to it because they were disobedient. So you take that information and you think, okay, how does that relate to entering rest in Hebrews four? Does it really change the context of of? Psalm 95 does it inform us in a new way does it give us some extra new revelation or is he just using it to make a a common sense statement um, relating to what he's talking about in his argument it's
1: reinforcing his argument with information they
0: already know absolutely so that's it for this one Okay, you've done that so that's why he's, he's used it, and uh, then he carries on verse four, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. This is an interesting way of quoting things, isn't it? The writer actually doesn't know where it's <laughs> where the quotes come from uh, so, uh, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way and God rested on the seventh day from all his works but clearly we know he's probably lining back to somewhere in Genesis but the writer himself here says oh I'm not quite sure where that is but I'll just, I'll just generalise it didn't have his NET. he didn't have his NET no. he probably didn't have a copy of the Genesis scroll it's probably probably yeah, somewhere locked away in the temple, mind we probably think this is written after AD 70. Who knows? Actually, the first one, he doesn't say, here is a quote. We no.
1: know that because it's been put in quotes and been identified yes. for us. Yes. This
0: one, he's saying, this is a quote. Somewhere it is spoken. There. Yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting, isn't it? He, he's he just, he's, he's inferring. You should know this. God rested after he created the world. But he doesn't put it in quote terms, unlike Psalm 95, which is a direct quote. And again, in this passage, he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and for those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. So now he's done a summarise his argument, which we got from Psalm 95. They didn't enter rest because they were disobedient again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted so now he goes and he gives a quote out of David's thing, today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts so if we were doing an extensive view of this, we have to put all these Old Testament quotes in line and say what is we really arguing here it's all about rest, it's all about disobedience uh, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would have not spoken of another day later on. So, you know, here, here's the age old thing. When Joshua conquered the land, he's now saying that wasn't the rest that was promised. Because it was restated to David in the Davidic covenant. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That's the main point. So he goes through his argument, that's his point. There is a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. It's quite a complex argument. They're saying there is rest, and then let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, than any two edged sword piercing the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So contextually, how does that verse fit in? To the argument of chapter 4.
1: is always pointing to Jesus in his coming and his second coming and this is, you've got to stay true um, to achieve it, you've, you've got to stay faithful to God or you will not get that rest at the end
0: So, so you've got to tie the theme of Hebrews 4.12 into the principle of rest mm-hmm. have to it's how many where it's driving you have to tie it in there so let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one will fall by the same sort of disobedience he just explained what the disobedience is like and then he gives the answer to a life of obedience be in the word Because the word is living. The word is active. The word is going to refine you. It's going to sharpen you. It's going to prune you. It's going to pierce you. It's going to sort you out. It's going to deal with your heart. So that's where he's driving. That's the way rest comes when you're exposed to God's word and you allow it to be living and active in your own heart. If you don't, you'll become disobedient. Just like what you said.
1: So the word here is referring to
0: the written message or to,
1: the, to, the, um, to Jesus. The word of God. Um, you know,
0: John is to as, uh, Jesus. Is the but in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Yes. The eternal logos, the eternal word. It's one and the same thing.
1: Here it's about two,
0: the two things. Is it's talking about, I would think that as you look at that, the Word of God, we're talking about the canon of Scripture, right? Spoken by God through the prophets who were carried along and inspired to give us His revealed truth. Yeah,
1: because the context of the next bit is
0: Jesus, our compassionate
1: high priest. Yes, right? yes. Just... Yeah. Because mm-hmm. you can say, sometimes they can say, one word means
0: two things three things yes yeah but context determines the meaning of a word
1: right so that's why what do you think it's
0: both i think it's both because it starts off with the good news came to us just as it did to them so he starts on chapter four the good news is the word of god the good news is redemption the good news is salvation the good news is Uh, the law and the Torah the good news is the message about creation the good news is the fact that that if you are obedient to me from an Old Testament I will pour out blessing and you will have rest okay but then it's actually then it's coming further because he's saying the good news came to us as to them but the message they had did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened Um, so this is saying you have you 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 Hebrews, you Christian Hebrews of this book, you understand faith in a far greater way than your forefathers did because you have faith in Christ, the eternal word. Okay? So yeah, I think it's both and both. Yeah? It's God's word talking about the entire old Testament, plus Jesus, the revealed word of God, New Testament, if you want. Yeah. okay so that was just a little bit of an exercise It took us off track but that's okay it's fun to do these things so you see how hermeneutics is really important you, you, you grab that, that you've got to pull things in context because if I said here this is the most simple example a, I, I use a lot if I write that word what do I mean or. Yeah. something or. around or and going go to a dance going to the ball see it has no meaning by itself unless it has a context I know oh, no, you don't that's why I like say <laughs> <basketball>. well, uh, <laughs> on <basketball>. Sunday especially <laughs> but you know so unless I said Johnny threw the ball then you say it's a round object that's been thrown if I said um, Johnny and Jane went to the high school ball has a different context and it determines what the meaning of the word is, right? Yeah. So that's why context is so important. Because so often we sometimes will have a word and, we, and we're and we going to talk about this later today, word study fallacies. And there are numerous word study fallacies inside biblical literature. You see them all the time. And it's important. I'll give you a classic word study fallacy. How often have you heard a preacher say um, dynamos? It's the Greek word for power. Dynamos. It's like dynamite. Exploding. You know, your evangelism is going to explode like dynamite. One real problem with that dynamite wasn't invented until probably about the 16th century. So what you've done is you've done a word study fallacy where you've taken a later the word and drawn it back into the Original context. You're breaking one of the major rules of preaching, letting the truth in the way of the story. That's precisely it. <laughs> so, that's why it's important to understand these things, especially as students of God's Word. Right, now let's look at, um, let's have a little bit of fun, let's have a look at different genres uh, in the Bible. You know that what the Bible is made up of many different genres, right? You know what a genre is? We talked about this last week. It's a, a style of writing. We hear genres in music these days, uh, different genres of music rap versus classical versus uh, rock. It's the same in, in the written text that we have before us. And in your paperwork there, I've just uh, broken it down to one, two, three, four, five, six genres. There are more, but this will just give you a taste of um, where we can go with this so genres each genre requires a different method of interpretation simple isn't it I I don't think you would disagree with that statement I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to look at Hebrew poetry filled with metaphor and, and different types of language in the same way as I'll look at the epistles or the letters Okay, the epistles and letters are didactic what we call didactic, they're there to teach us something in a very formal structured way versus Hebrew poetry where we have the Psalms or we have Ecclesiastes we have Job it's a different way of communicating because of different styles so we're just going to look at some of these and I'll I'll, I'll give you just some idea about... um, how we should look at different things The largest uh, Form In the New and Old Testament Is historical narrative If I was thinking about historical narrative What type of books Are uh, Covering Biblical historical narrative Genesis yeah. Genesis, Exodus is a historical narrative. Samuel is a historical narrative. First and second Samuel. First and second Kings is a historical narrative. Deuteronomy is a sermon by Moses. Yeah, potentially a historical narrative. Leviticus? Maybe? Slightly? See? Not
1: that. <laughs>
0: Right, no, so what would you? How would you? How would you? Um, I won't go there. So biblical narratives are not explicit, but implicit in what they teach. And so when you look at um, what are some of the New Testament narratives passages we have, the Gospels are all narrative, the historical narrative, Acts is historical narrative. So those are four primary historical narrative books in the New Testament. So, these are some of the things that I think you should note. Uh, You need, um, it's very necessary to identify what the implied assertions are in the story. So, why is a writer giving us the story? Why is a writer giving us the creation of the world? Those are questions you've got to ask. What's the reality? What's the morality, and what's the values that the story tells us? The reality, the how, the morality, and the values. These are what it means to identify the implied assertions from the narrative. Now, so... Assertions. So there's some things there that we need to to look for to help to determine what these implied assertions are. First thing is repetition. It's a major factor in narrative Repetition. If something repeats, it is going to tell us what the implied assertion is. Second part is. Um, Oh, I'll just do shorthand, it's easier for me. This pen is penis, hopeless. The others two have run out. Character We've got character transformation. So you think about the life of Saul, the king. Old Testament. How did his character transform through the narrative of his life?
1: Ups and downs
0: ups and downs downs. up and down ups and downs up and then the general slide Okay. until he decided to call up a medium to find out what was going on Uh, he wasn't trusting in God he didn't understand that (laughs) he should have been serving God in that process so when you look at the character transformation of say Saul as the character in those last chapters of First, on the early chapters of First Samuel, you can make a call on what the implied assertion is. Don't be like Saul, be like David. David is a king after God's own heart. All right? uh, let's think about the life of Joseph. Okay, the well, just character portion in Genesis is on the life of Joseph, believe it or not that's the largest space in the Genesis account about Joseph so what do you think about from, what's repeated in that story that you know of, what is uh, some of the transformation that happens in his character dreams
1: learning the hard
0: way yeah in the hard way, dreams yeah that was a a way God used him to bring him to prominence to mature to mature you you know this transformation he was he could have have sat in his prison cell and thinking why was me it is not fair we don't know whether that's what he was thinking but you know you would think that uh, Mr. Baker Mr. um, Cupbearer well, Mr. Cutbearer is the one. Why didn't you remember me? It took a couple of years for that to happen. So you see the character transformation. We see with the life of Joseph, it was a long period of time before his character was transformed to be a mighty God man of God. Um, And you see in the the back of that character transformation you see this wonderful transformation and I think it's because of the period of time that God put him through that he did not have a hate for his brothers. When he met them he had a love for his brothers. Because you have right at that story you meant it for me for harm but God meant it for my good. That's it. That's Joseph in a nutshell. I've been through these trials but it... Right through the process, it's been for my good. So that's a major character transformation. So that's an applied assertion. So, so as that's a reader of that, yeah, it's a little
1: bit a different response to what he would have given at the time when he was telling the dreams to him. Yeah. And telling how he would go down to me one day. So he was sort of
0: probably yeah. There was an arrogance and pride right at the start, right? Yeah, he, he was even saying to his mum and dad, which is completely disrespectful in that culture, yeah. completely. Even though, like, it's a, it, it might be true.
1: It's
0: yeah. a true translation, but. Yeah. A, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so there's this major character transformation that occurs in that story of Joseph. Phenomenal transformation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The other thing to watch for is an applied assertions It's always in every form of narrative, historical or New Testament or Old Testament, is the amount of space that's given to the narrative. That's important. Because that will give you some idea of what the author is trying to emphasize. So why does the writer in Genesis give more space to Joseph than he does to Isaac? And even to Abraham? Because
1: there's pictures there that can be used to reflect... Well, they might not have this in mind, but it's pictures of Christ
0: that reason in mind the aspect of the right of God can use the life So as a, as a, let's think as as a as a, uh, a Hebrew who's just come out of slavery, four hundred years under Egyptian control, Moses receives the Torah. He's writing it out for his people, he's teaching his people who God is. In the beginning God had the heavens and earth there was a fall flood there was a scattering of the nations and then God picked Abraham he made a promise with him he made a promise with him major promises and that promise was passed on to Isaac that promise was passed on to Jacob the deceiver And that promise is passed on to Joseph, which is to Jacob's twelve sons. But Joseph is the one that is highlighted, isn't even more than Judah. Kind of interesting, really. So why? This is the question you know, hear it is. This is the thing you've got to ask: Why does the writer do that?
1: It's how they end up in Egypt. It's the beginning of the whole story of getting for pulled out, and that just yeah. keeps getting mentioned
0: all the way through. Yeah, Jacob. Bring your boys back to Egypt. Well, we can have the best of the land, and then you have right at the end of Genesis. What is it? And then a time came when the Pharaohs did not know who Joseph was, enslaved the people because they were in the best land. They were blessed. And Goshen was a beautiful part of Egypt. where so all the, that was the the fruit bowl of Egypt. Yeah, so, you've got to ask the question what is the historical narrative already saying there? What is? Why is there more space on Joseph than anything else in sure. Genesis? Someone heard the
1: other day was, when a society or a country recognizes a person who's done a great for that country, a person who did a lot of, it. you know, they might have you know, Abraham Lincoln Day or. or um, Certain days, or certain prominence, or certain stories told about the person that has contributed to help that nation. In this case, Jesus would have been the hero at that particular time. Moses is writing the story, and
0: Jesus is getting a good billing.
1: Except yep. if you'd never said, Come down and join me here they never would have ended up as slaves and they would have stayed where they were. There would
0: never have been no redemption. There would be never no fulfilment mm-hmm. of the fact that God said to Abraham, I'm going to put your people in slavery for 430 years. Yeah. But their lives are
1: independent freedom. You don't
0: think that bad, you know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so proportional space is important and so is crucial events. Now when you look at historical narrative this is something, uh, events, crucial events right? that, that will help Exodus clearly the crucial event the events are you've got plagues that go through the land and then finally you've got the death angel that is the crucial event of the first four chapters of Genesis right? because the Passover is instituted that's a crucial event in the life of the nation for millennia and then for the life of you and I, as this week we will celebrate the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, So that's a crucial event that, that you've got to make sure you grab hold of to make sure, okay, this is an implied assertion. This is something that the story is making constant reference to.
1: So the events give it cemetery in the sense, don't they? Because, for example, I think it's in the book of Leviticus my guess is where you've got sign-up and you've got seven events actually that happened before sign-up uh, a bit of water people complaining uh, the ground up and then you have the same events happen after yep. in reverse yep. sort of
0: thing, so. so that's a chiastic structure of the way the right says so and something else that you look at inside narrative you can look at chiastic structures and that's exactly what that is right. so it, the emphasis is the, the central point of the story is sign-up it's a central point. These events that happen first, these are events after. You have this worshiping of the uh, golden calf, and the commandments coming down. Well, that's central to that part of the narrative. Yeah, good, good observation. Setting is important. So the physical setting, the temporal setting, and the cultural setting. So your physical setting it, it builds the atmosphere of the story. Clearly. Okay, um, you think of Daniel. Uh, it's probably not a historical narrative, so will not think of Daniel. The first six chapters are probably a historical narrative. Okay, the, it's post-exilic, so it's important. that's part of the cultural setting. It's post-exilic. Is it post-exilic? Is it pre-exilic? Is it patriarchal? Okay, is it pre-Temple destruction, post-Temple destruction? What? cultural setting is going on as a part of the the Greco-Roman world at that time, that's the New Testament so you know what's going on Uh, the temporal setting is a setting in time because all these stories and narratives, they happen at some point in time, so you've got to be aware of that as well when in the history did they happen Uh, plot this is an important thing uh, as you look through so you need to think about plot a definition, whenever you look at a story well what's the major plot here What's the succession of events in the story? What conflict may there be? Is there a physical conflict? Is there a battle? Is there a war? Is there, who are the enemies? What's going on here? Is there a conflict between characters? Joseph and his brothers. Is there a conflict between you know, Jesus and the Pharisees? The Sadducees. Um, is there a moral conflict? Okay, It's an important one, isn't it? A moral conflict. You think about Jacob and Esau. Was there a moral conflict there? Uh, these are part of the plot. And that's the major the issue with Jacob and Esau. Is it, there was this moral and character conflict going on. You stole my birthright. Well, you didn't value it. And then Jacob continues as a life of deceit. Deceiver, 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 you know? But God still uses him. It's incredible act of grace. Then you look at the character. What kinds of characters are they? Is there a direct description in the in the text that describes the characters? Is there a response of others about those characters? Are there what are some of the actions that reveal their character? Job, prime example. Maybe Job's probably more poetry. First couple of chapters are more historical, I would think. But you know, what is what actions reveal his character? Or, or um, Jacob would be a prime example there. Um, you know, Abraham what revealed his character he tried to, there was trickery and treachery involved there with his character early on he tried to expediate the end oh no, she's my sister (laughs) you know, so he lied and those sorts of things Um, normally a story is told through a character, not about a character Okay? it's just one of those things that you need to think through when you think about biblical narrative uh, so you've got characters and then you've got the protagonists identify and follow them what tests do they go through what choices are they making what transformation occurs that's a really important part of it of when you're looking at narrative it's a test of physical strength or courage. You know, Samson, David and Goliath, Deborah and Barak. It's all about strength and courage. Resourcefulness, Naomi and Ruth. Very resourceful. Um, spiritual struggle. Protagonists. The main character. Uh, what choices did they make? Joseph running from Potiphar's wife. Saul just tragic just tragic Saul Uh, what transformation takes place from a flawed character you know you think Saul is a major transformation downhill what's the plot from an evil character Haman and Jezebel Manasseh those types of things what type of other plots are there sometimes there's a comic plot like in a divine comedy Uh, Ruth is an example of that And change of character. Get that with Paul, the apostle. Uh, Denigration of the character. Get that with Saul and Solomon. Think about Solomon. Character transformation. Took too many wives, took too many horses, had too much money. The three things he was told not to do. And, yeah, yeah so when you identify the story look for the boundaries the beginning and the end always look for the beginning and the end of the narrative where's the start where does it finish and that's your unit of thought divide your narrative into scenes it's always a good thing to do so if you think about the narrative of Joseph you would divide it into probably a couple of scenes wouldn't you you'd say pre-slavery you know dreaming, sliding, whatever um, then you'd say um, slavery up to maybe prison would be another scene all that stuff going on and then you'll go um, from prison to commander or something like that so you've got the three major scenes and then you'd have probably a fourth scene final scene would be restoration of the stand so think about your narrative in times of scenes you know some what are the various plots and try to see the interplay let's try to see the role of the story within the larger narrative so when you talk about Joseph what's the role of that story in the larger narrative of Genesis good question to ask isn't it You've touched on some of it so what is the role of that story why was he being put up as an idea Identify how the narrative influences your approval, disapproval of events and characters. You need to always formulate a statement of what the story means based on these observations. So if I said to you, the story of Joseph, what does it mean? What do you reckon it means? The
1: story of God. Work. How he always turns events around to where he needs
0: them to be. Yep. So you've got God's sovereignty is a theological theme that could flow out of the story. God is sovereign, even though Joseph thought otherwise for most of his life
1: yeah
0: that could be one of the one of what the story means
1: redemption.
0: yeah redemption and blessing blessing to those who didn't deserve it when you think about it right at the end because at the end of the day they were starving and they came Egypt and you know, God cared for that family, the 12 tribes of Israel. Now we're hopelessly out of time already. Yeah.
1: John's alone with the okay. <laughs> like to oh, sorry.
0: We're now i going to spend some time looking at uh, Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry is a large portion of. Uh, the Old Testament uh, it's going to cover the Psalms, the wisdom literature and some Hebrew poetry also appears in the prophetical writings uh, prophecy, uh, Isaiah is a classic example of that now this is probably the most important thing I'll say about this the key to understanding poetry, Hebrew poetry is to recognise its structure structure is governed by formal parallelism of thought. So uh, parallelism is a key ingredient in understanding Hebrew poetry. See, it's normally a juxtaposition of two or more lines with a variety of relationships uh, this word here, stitch, S-T-I-C-H-S, is what uh, grammarians call a formal line of poetry. So it's this one here, S-T-I. So that's what a formal line is. So. What is Hebrew poetry? Gentlemen It's a parallelism of thought Okay It's a relationship between two lines Or two or more lines I'm going to give you an example So get your Bibles Let's grab Give you different forms of parallelism Because it's not that simple There's many different forms of parallelism And this is important to understand as you unlock the truths of scripture so go to Proverbs Proverbs uh, 20 verse 1 I've we'll got that one to start with so Proverbs 21 says this wine is a mocker strong drinker brawler and whoever is led astray by it is not wise so as you know that uh, Proverbs are maxims of wise sayings right? they're not promises wise sayings and uh, this is a a classic proverb and uh, there is what we call synonymous parallelism going on here where's the synonymous parallelism wine is strong drink you see those two words in that um, first line so wine is a mocker strong drink is a brawler So, you've got wine as a mocker, it's A and B, and you've got strong drink, a brawler. This is saying the same thing in different words. That's what the word synonymous means synonymous parallelism. It says the same thing in different words. So, wine as a mocker, strong drink as a brawler. And then, here, as you read the rest of the proverb, and then it gives a result. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. So it states the fact of what wine is like And then it says, okay This is the result if you follow this way It's a wise saying um, So that is what we call synonymous parallelism Now, the word of God is full of synonymous parallelism And uh, it will be the most common that you'll see So it uses we use one or two different terms to really explain the same thing. Is that why they have... Why do
1: they do it? Is that because they don't two witnesses,
0: two
1: examples, two proofs, to try and
0: emphasize a point? I think it's just the poetical, metaphoric language it is, to be quite honest. I don't think there's a, anything behind it. There may be, but it's just a way of... Uh, a, a written word creating a picture that stays with you uh,
1: yeah. is it also clarification so, yeah. Uh, yeah you're adding a bit more detail to it yeah you're not just
0: going
1: oh why it's bad you know you're actually just broadening it broadening the um perspective I guess Yeah. it
0: yeah uh, yeah. Yeah. To emphasis to it? yeah it does yeah it does I think all those things are correct. The, the synonymous type of stuff is just really to emphasise uh, a different way so that's synonymous there's another one called emblematic parallelism and this is normally a a, um, parallelism of comparison and it's predominantly with metaphors and similes so if we go to Psalm 103 I'll give you one of those to have a look at Psalm 103 Look at verse 13. As a father so shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Um, NASB says, As a father pities his children, so the Lord shows pity to those who fear him. Uh, you have an emblematic parallelism here. You see, the uh, the key thing here is uh, compassion, right? So, your central thought there is compassion. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. So, it's building. It's showing a comparison. Um, just as a father, human natural father, shows compassion, so a heavenly father, it's compar- is a, is a comparison, shows compassion to those who fear Him. See how that works? It's called emblematic. Uh, Yeah. Just one example of that. I'll I'll go through and give you the types, and then what we'll do is we we will uh, look at trying to look at different passages and then try and describe what the parallelism is going on. That might be the best way of doing this. So, synonymous, emblematic, antithetical parallelism. So, this is an opposite or a contrast. Uh, Antithetic A-N-T-I-T-H-E-T-I-C Antithetic So go to Proverbs 10 Proverbs 10 And we'll look at Verse 1 So the Proverbs of Solomon Clearly isn't a a line of parallelism that's just been put in there to say who's the author. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Okay, so you've got an immediate contrast. You've got uh, the contrast between the wise and the foolish. Uh, another translation says a wise son makes uh, a wise son gladdens a father, and a foolish. Uh, and a son's foolishness grieves his mother is another good translation of this particular uh, verse and so that's an antithetical a contrast
1: mm-hmm.
0: so if I was to say to you this is, we'll just work on this one at the moment I can't mm-hmm. remember what the psalm is but the psalm is as a deer pants for the water so my soul pants after you what type of parallelism is that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Yeah, well done. Okay. This one, Proverbs 9, 8. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you.
1: Antithetical. I don't know how to pronounce that. So. Antithetical. Antithetical. antithetical?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Antithetical. Antithetical. Antithetic. Antithetic. Uh, okay. Proverbs 9 5. I'm just going through here. Come eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. This, is, uh, this one. It's synonymous.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Come eat and drink. I would think it's probably almost emblematic. It's a comparison. You're eating and you're drinking. Not eating, eating. Synonymous would be describing eating in another way. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: It's a physical elements. So for it to be uh, synonymous, it would have to to you no. Know, the, the wine is a micro strong drinker brawler. The central thing is wine and strong drink. So wine and strong drink are the same thing. But it's synonymous, right? So but. Eat my bread, drink of the wine—different elements. Still consuming. still consuming, so you could probably you could probably have a case that way. Uh, I would probably that say that's a new turn. There's a new genre. <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay. I'll give you another one. I'll give you another another a fourth part of parallelism. So we've had three: synonymous, emblematic, antithetic. Uh, the fourth one is uh, synthetic. Synthetic parallelism And it's all about the Development of relationships So if we go to Amos We'll give you a a bit of prophetic uh, Stuff here I hope you know where Amos is (laughs) Gentlemen Easy (laughs) A-M-O-S Or as my American friend says Amos Amos Amos, yeah, so we'll um, go to Amos 1, 7. Uh, I think it's 1, 7, no, 2, 7, that's what I've got there, but I need 1, 7. Okay, Amos 1, 7. So, I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it shall devour her strongholds. So this is synthetic, it's developing an idea, all right? The idea is that a fire is going to be on the wall of Gaza. That's the the first line. And the second line, this fire will be so intense it is going to devour the strongholds of that wall. So it's it's a synthetic parallelism. There's a relationship of development. That's the best way I can put it. So there's a development of the idea and what is going to occur beyond that.
1: Is that question
0: um, about it's poetry? Does that make it real, or is it just a uh... this is po po uh, prof- prophetic poet? The style of genre is poetry. The style of the book is prophetic. So the Lord is using poetry to say this will happen, using metaphors and sim- similes, right? So but something similar to this will happen. Uh, in this one here, uh, you probably want to go to context, which is important, because context will go back to verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. So, there is some parallels, because they carried into exile whole people to deliver them up to Eden. So, there is a, God is using this form of poetry to say, well, no, this is historically what's going to happen as well. Okay? Gaza is going to be judged. I'm gonna judge them, I'm gonna judge them by first starting with the wall. And I'll devour the strongholds. And then I'll cut off the inhabitants. And then I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish. So
1: because they used a poetry term to establish the prophetic destruction of Gaza, yeah. it doesn't make it unreal. No. And when I talk about some people about certain things, or certain things,
0: and the key to that is, is, "Thus says the Lord." The key to it is, it's the Lord speaking, right? It's mm-hmm. prophetic because it's the Lord speaking. If you go in the context back to verse six, yeah.
1: yeah. So when other things in say, Psalms and other prophetic books uh, said certain things, it doesn't mean they're less real because they're in a poetic form, or even not in a poetry which in a, a public book in the Psalms that
0: would be true as well, it? well I think you have to look at the context of it yeah right. yeah. You know, for instance if you think as a deer pants for the water so my soul longs after you yeah. does your soul so long after God like a panting deer no, that's just analogy. so it's an analogy it's a picture isn't it you, yeah. you, can, you can picture a panting deer being exhausted, getting to the water and lapping up the water. And then, so that's a simile of what our relationship with the Lord should be like when we thirst after him. So that's not historical, is it? No, it's a picture language, devotional picture language, and a lot of the Psalms are like that. But there are some Psalms that are historical as well. Yeah. Okay, You think about some of those magnificent Psalms that talk about the history of Israel and how they've overcome a lot of those in there alright, uh, finally there's external and internal parallelism, parallelism several layers to it ok so let's go look at Isaiah 110 for this one Hear the word of the Lord, Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. So you have internal uh, stuff here. Internal is, hear ye the word of the Lord. The external is, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching or Torah of our God is the internal and the external, you people of Gomorrah. Several layers to it. It's uh, They're all synthetic, as you see through there. All the internal ones are synthetic, all the external ones are synonymous. If you really want to get technical on it. All the internal stuff, hear ye the word of Yahweh, hear ye the Torah of God, and um, Though the internal ones there are all synthetic parallelism and the external ones rulers of Sodom for the people of Gomorrah or synonymous. Sodom and Gomorrah, right? So just broken it Yeah. It's a bit more technical this that particular one. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's what they say. Well, I've got a lot more to do on this, but I'm gonna just um, I'm gonna stop it now because it's getting late. 26 we've gone for one hour seven minutes so thanks Jensen.